I think um, most of you know by now that uh, before I served God as a pastor, I had the chance to serve Him as an engineer. And uh, it's one of the things I love about our church is that w- uh, the leaders here get the idea that work is a, a noble calling whereby we serve our king. And I, I love that we have a class out there on the theology of work, thinking about how work is worship um, and how you offer it there. I'm, I'm not sure that as a young engineer I always got that. Um, and there were things that broke out in, in my work experience that had absolutely nothing to do with the worship of God. Uh, one of those, as I've mentioned to you before, were rubber band wars. Uh, my engineering team that I was a part of would barricade one portion of the office and we would go against the other part of the office and we'd be shooting these rubber bands back and forth uh, ferociously. And uh, so I'm this young college grad, right? I'm the young guy, I'm the new guy, and I'm in there with all these kind of middle-aged engineers and they are wasting me with rubber bands. It was embarrassing. So I'm shooting my rubber band, right? I have a rubber band here. I take my little rubber band, I pop up over my desk, I let that thing fly, and uh, it gets to about Merle, okay? These guys from across the room, they have their little rubber bands, and they're loading them up, and they're shooting these things, and it's going, how far, who'd that end up near? If you raise your hand, where that rubber, okay. Their rubber bands are back at the soundboard, okay? They're killing me. And I'm trying to figure out why. Finally, Louis, my mentor engineer, took me aside and he mentored me in this. He said, <laughs> he said, uh, he said man, it's, it's all about the tension. You got a tension one side of the rubber band and let the other one be slack. He said, otherwise, if you tension them both, they're just fighting each other. I'm like, dude, why didn't you tell me that before? They killed me in the battle. But that's what it was like. It was all about the tension. You get the tension right, you prevail. You get the tension wrong, you're dead meat. It's exactly the principle that I want you to carry into the lesson today from Deuteronomy chapter 9. You get the tension right that we're going to talk about, and you prevail. Moses is going to tell the people. You get the tension wrong, and you are, in this case, quite literally, uh, dead meat. We are going to encounter today this, um, at some level, unsolvable tension between the sovereign rule of God and the responsibility of man in Deuteronomy chapter 9. And so if you'll open your Bibles up there, it would be good for us uh, to pray about this before we go any further. God, I am keenly aware how we need favor from you today how we need faith from you today that we might trust you with that which seems upside down to us and at some levels insolvable to us. God, I pray that today your word would prevail in our lives and our faith would be strengthened by it. God, I pray that my words would serve that good end. And in no way would any barrier be put up to a wholehearted trust in you. So God, we we sit under your word that it might strengthen our faith in you, our good, our good Father. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 9 starts this way. Hear, O Israel, 
You are to cross over the Jordan today, Moses says. To go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven. A people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. And it is a reminder of the promise of God as they are again on the verge of entering the land of promise. That when they entered the promised land and they would face seemingly insurmountable odds, there were giants in the land, okay? God would drive out their enemies before them. Or, or they would drive out their enemies. Uh, which is it? Verse 3, it says it both ways. It says um, that uh, he will destroy them. God will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly. Um, are they supposed to do it? Or is God going to do it? And of course, uh, the tremendously unsatisfying answer is yes. Okay. Yes. In that one verse, uh, verse 3, both of those things brush right up against each other in the same verse. Uh, God's sovereignty on the one hand and man's responsibility on the other. Um, and Moses is deeply concerned that we get that tension right. Not that we remove the tension, um, but that we get that tension right. You know, you can fall off... Um, Probably one side or the other on this thing. You could, I suppose, if you were an Israelite and you heard him say this, you could say, it's all God. Just going to kick back in a tent, wait for God to mop them up, and then we're going to go in, sample some of the fruits of God's victory. Moses is not concerned about that error, erroneous though it may be. He doesn't even talk about it. He is concerned that we not fall off on the other side of this tension. Where, where the Israelites might say, it's all on us. Okay. It's up to us. Maybe not all on us, but significantly on us, at least to such an extent, that when we prevail, we should get some of the credit. We should get some of the glory. This is what... Um, Tim Keller referred to last week, I quoted him in the message, he called it um, being middle class in spirit. Remember that? You know, Jesus calls us to be poor in spirit, but Keller says, on the contrary, you, you believe that God owes you some things. He ought to answer your prayers and bless you for the many good things you've done. Even though the Bible doesn't use the term, by inference, we can say that you are middle class in spirit. You feel that you've earned a certain standing with God through your hard work. You may also believe that the success and the resources you have are primarily due to your own industry and energy. This is exactly what Moses is concerned about in the lives of the people as they are about to enter the land. The rest of the chapter, 
all addresses the singular issue in their lives and in ours. He is concerned about our pride. Particularly, our tendency to overvalue ourselves. That we would have too much tension on that side of the rubber band. Now, this is what's really interesting about what's about to happen. The rest of the chapter, Moses is instructing them on what's going to happen, how they're supposed to think when they enter the land and, and this great victory is won. It hasn't happened yet. But because God has promised it, Moses is absolutely confident that it's going to happen. So confident that he's giving all this detailed instruction that follows uh, starting in verse 4. He says to the Israelites, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore, he says it again, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. Over and over and over again, Moses says it, it's not because you're so absolutely wonderful that God is showing favor on you and driving these nations out from before you. It's not because of your righteousness, he says. It's because your enemies are so incredibly wicked that they're being driven out of the land. Um, and... That's going to come up again and again in Deuteronomy. You'll see it in Deuteronomy 18, for instance, uh, where we read, um, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, giving you okay, say, same exact scenario, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations, the ones that are in the land. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. And in, in case, this is a description of the Canaanites and the people that lived in the promised land. And if, in case you missed it, he'll say it in Deuteronomy 12 as well. You shall not worship the Lord your God in their way, in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Okay. So you want to know why God's driving them out of the land? It's judgment on some of the most heinous sin we could imagine.
It's not about your righteousness, God says. It's, it's about their wickedness. It's nothing to be particularly proud of, to say, look at us. We don't burn our sons and daughters in the fire. That's nothing to be proud of. It's not because of you, Moses says. In fact, he's going to go on and say, it's in spite of you. Look at what he says in the next few verses, uh, verse 6. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness... For you are a stubborn people. Some of your Bibles render that a stiff-necked people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place 40 years. You have been rebellious against the Lord. See, it's not just the Canaanites People in the land who have sin issues that deserve God's judgment. Moses says, so do you. He says, y'all are a stubborn, stiff-necked people. From the day you left Egypt, for 40 years you've been rebels against your God. The whole way. And then he's going to cite not one, but five examples of this. In verse 8, he says, uh, Even at Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. So when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, okay, this is Mount Sinai, Moses going up to get the Ten Commandments, right? Just like the movie. Uh, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you. I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water, and the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly. So Moses has gone up the mountain. God's given him these tablets with the commands written that he had previously given at the beginning of Moses' 40 days. Um, He'd given them to the people verbally. Now they're written in stone by the finger of God. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. And the Lord said to me, Arise, Moses. Go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal or a graven image. See, the the second commandment, the one about not having any graven or carved or metal or any other images, any idols before God, um, they got it. And before Moses could even get it written down and down the mountain, they had violated it. Um, Horrifically so. In that short time, they had made themselves an image of a gold calf to incorporate into their worship. And what I want you to see is that while Moses is up on the mountain and the people are down and they've fallen into this sin, God knows their sin. He always knows our sin. And notice that he is eager 
to send Moses down to them quickly. And we'll return to that, but I want to make sure you notice that in verse 12. He wants Moses to go down right away. Verse 13, furthermore, the Lord said to me, Moses says, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Again, let me alone, God says, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation mightier and greater than they. Two very provocative things God says to Moses. One, let me alone and I'll destroy them. Then I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater than they. Verse 15, Moses says, I turn, came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire. The two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands, and I looked, and behold, you, the people, had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. Forty days. So I took hold of the two tablets, and I threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. And the shattering of the tablets are symbolic of the shattering of the covenant which the people had done in their sin. But what's Moses going to do now? Will he take God up on his offer and at last be rid of this troublesome, grumbling, rebellious people once for all and let God start over with him and his own family? from which God says he'll make a great nation. Verse 18, Moses chooses, and he lays prostrate before the Lord as before, 40 days and 40 nights, and neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you, the people, had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. And then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you'd made, and I burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. Moses, almost unbelievably, has decided to forego the offer of letting God start over with him and make him a great nation in and of himself. And instead, he decides to stand in the gap in prayer between a just and holy God and a sinful, rebellious, stubborn people. Moses chose the interests of the people above his own interests. And it's as though when Moses heard God say, let me alone that I may destroy them, it's as though that was a call for Moses not to let God alone. It made him realize that he could not leave God alone, that maybe even there was hope if he would not leave God alone. And the only reason I can imagine that Moses would make this choice is that he really did love those stubborn, stiff-necked people that God had called him to to lead. It's interesting. 
This is not the first time Moses had this dilemma. Uh, Back in Numbers 14, it's almost the exact same scenario. Uh, If you remember the story, the spies had gone into the promised land. They bring back a report. Land is good. People are big. And everybody's distressed. They don't want to go in the land. Um, They talk about killing Moses and going back to Egypt. And in Numbers 14, the Lord says to Moses at that time, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've done among them? I'll strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Same scenario. And back in that occasion too, Moses chose the people above his own interests. And he chose to pray for them rather than pursue his own greatness. See, Moses is the prototype shepherd of God's people. He is the model pastor. Um, he, is, he is 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3 exemplified. Or it says, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. It's in response to this humble shepherd's earnest prayers. Forty days and forty nights, Moses pleads with God for the people. And God relents and spares them. Not because of them, in spite of them. Because someone interceded for them and pled their case earnestly before their righteous judge. And not just for them, but for Aaron too. Aaron is symbolic. He was their high priest. He was their go-between, between between them and God. And he he was also the one who actually made those golden calves that they'd fallen into idolatrous worship about. It's not because of them. It's in spite of them. Only because someone made intercession on their behalf would God spare them his judgment. See, this is Moses' great concern. They had too much confidence in themselves. They thought themselves too deserving of God's favor. And it was so dangerous for their souls to think that they had been spared because of their righteousness. It wasn't because of them. It was in spite of them. St. Augustine said, My sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. Moses desperately wanted them to see that it was not because of their righteousness, but it was in spite of their great sin that God was going to rescue them and deliver them. And just in case they didn't get it, he rattles off four more examples to convince them of that very thing, that it wasn't because of their righteousness, it was in spite of their sin that they were being saved. In verse 22, he says, At Tibera also, and at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord set you up from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land I've given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. 
at Tibera. They grumbled against the Lord because they had been journeying in the desert for three days. Three days. At Massa, they grumbled because they didn't have enough water. At Kibroth Hatava, they grumbled because they had no meat. At Kadesh Barnea, they grumbled because there were giants in the land. Moses piles up these examples so that they'll see you have no righteousness to justify God's favor upon you. In fact, it's in spite of your rebellious sin that God has shown his favor to you. Would you say that that's how you think about your relationship with God? Does God show favor on you because of you or in spite of you? Because of your righteousness or even in spite of your great sin? Jesus would say, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. C.S. Lewis, when he puzzled over that provocative statement, concluded that prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. Are you in that danger? Moses summarizes again his intercession for the people. He says, So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you've brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness, or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Moses shows us here how he prayed for the people when they were facing God's wrath. And it revolves around three core truths. He says to God, remember they are your people. He says to God, these are your people whom you redeemed, whom you are in covenant relationship with. They're your people. Remember that, God. Then he says, remember your promises. It's the second thing. He says to God, these are your promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God, remember your promises. And thirdly, he says, God, remember your name. Your name will be shamed before your enemies, specifically the Egyptians you just put this awesome display of power on in front of. Your name will be shamed in them because you did not deliver your people into the land you had promised. So remember your people, God. Remember your promises and remember your name. And if we were to look back in Numbers 14... That other time when Moses interceded for the people to spare their very lives, we would find a fourth thing that shapes his prayers. He's praying to God, 
in that same situation. He says, now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. That fourth core truth is remember, God, your character, especially remember your love. Twice he brings it up. According to your steadfast love, God, Spare your people. Spare your people. Moses unselfishly goes before God to plead for these people, stubborn, grumbly, rebellious people who at one point talked about killing Moses. Now Moses pleads for 40 days and 40 nights for their very lives. By the covenant of God, by the promises of God, by the name of God, by the character of God, Moses stands in the gap for those who would otherwise face the judgment of God. And this is, a, this is a huge example for us in how we must pray. It's a challenge to pray more boldly, more unselfishly, more undeterredly than we ever have before. The challenge is that some in this room need to step up and begin to pray like Moses prayed. To pray like Moses prayed for our church. Passionately claiming the promises of God. Claiming the name of God. Claiming that we are his people. And interceding for the church like Moses prayed for God's people. To pray like Moses for your family. To pray with passion unrelenting, reminding God of his promises as they relate to your family, interceding. To pray like Moses for those who stand outside of this family this morning. People you know and you care about who don't know the mercy of God yet, who are facing head-on the judgment of God. Will you pray like Moses for those people? Is God calling you today to make a new commitment to pray with passion for your friends who don't know Christ? And tonight at 6 o'clock, we gather as a church family in this room to do exactly that. You should come in obedience to what God is saying to you right now. If you sense God calling you to pray and intercede along the lines of what Moses did tonight at 6 o'clock, join me in this room. And we will pray for those who are waiting, facing the judgment of God in need of his mercy. We will intercede tonight for mercy, for mercy for those who are facing his judgment. As Mark mentioned earlier, it's the week before Easter. And there are some surveys that indicate that 8 out of 10 unchurched people are likely to come to church if you will just invite them. 8 out of 10 of your unchurched, these people that don't go to church, of your friends and family, if you just invite them, they would, they would be likely, at least somewhat likely to come, the survey indicated. And Easter, they've discovered, after Christmas is the most likely time for someone to embrace an invitation to church. It's just as likely 
as when a national crisis happens like 9-11. Easter, people are just as likely to accept an invitation of church. When there's a national crisis like 9-11 or, or a crisis like Duke losing in the first round of the NCAA tournament, um, people are just as likely, more likely than when they had a baby, which really opens up people spiritually many times. They start thinking about how incompetent they are as a parent. Um, so if you have a friend who doesn't go to church and they're a Duke fan and they just have a, had a baby... They're amongst the elect. Get them in here. Okay? But tonight, we gather as a church to pray like Moses. You should be here. Moses prayed for the people in an amazing And an amazing thing that I can't really explain fully, God relents of his judgment in response to Moses' prayers. Uh, We'll look at chapter 10 real briefly. At At that time, when Moses had prayed, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were in the first tablets that you broke and you shall put them in the ark. So Moses does all this. And what you have here is the symbolism, the shattering of the tablets was the breaking of the covenant. The remaking of the, of the tablets is the restoring of that covenant, the renewing of it with God's people. God has for, foregone his judgment, and he's showing them mercy. They're put in the ark, symbolizing God's everlasting covenant with his people in the presence of that ark. Skip down with me to verse uh, 10, the last couple verses in our passage. Moses says, recaps, he says, I stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights. He's praying for the people, 40 days, 40 nights. And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. The Lord was unwilling to to destroy you. It's an interesting expression. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you in response to Moses' prayer? Yes. Yes, indeed, in response to Moses' prayer. Um, But I think there are hints in our passage that that was God's position all along. That he was all along the way unwilling to destroy his people. Remember back in, in verse 12 of chapter 9? When Moses was sent down the mountain so hurriedly, it says, the Lord said to me, this is when the Lord is aware of the people with his golden calf throwing this idolatrous uh, party down there. He says, arise, go down quickly, Moses, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They made themselves a metal image Why did God send Moses down so quickly? I think God was never willing to destroy his people. That's why he sent Moses down. He sent Moses down to intercede. It's not that Moses 
by his prayers was somehow overcoming God's reluctance by his prayers. It's more that he was laying hold of God's greatest willingness. Archbishop Trench actually said it that way. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his highest willingness according to his covenant, according to his promises, according to his name and his character. In the sending of Moses, God was making a way for his people to escape judgment and experience grace. Grace means... I do get what I don't deserve. And I don't get what I do deserve. That's what grace means. I do get what I don't deserve. And I don't get what I do deserve. Grace means when God acts on my behalf, it's not because of me. It's actually in spite of me. If you haven't figured it out yet, This is a pointer to our story. Let me skip through some slides. The Apostle Paul put it this way in uh, 1 Timothy. He says, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says, of whom I am the foremost. It's not because of us. It's not because of our righteousness that God in his mercy has saved us. It's in spite of our great sin. It's because of the one who loved us and interceded for us. Isaiah looked forward to him and he said, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews would look back at this intercessor and say, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Jesus has made a way for us to find grace instead of judgment by his own intercession, by his acting as our substitute and bearing our sins on the cross. That is our great hope. Not in our righteousness, but that in spite of our sin, there is one who makes intercession for us, who stood in our place and bore our sin. Jesus the Christ. Would you pray with me? Since then, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, we worship you. We pray in your name.